There are quite a few things that I have grown to love and cherish about this particular congregation in my time here. One of those things is that you can't get anything past you all. I heard several people notice as you came in that I have been uh, attaching things to the walls and uh, setting them up around the sanctuary. And don't worry, uh, I'm about to end your wait, um, your excitement of finding out what is going on here. What in the world is she up to? Um, another thing is the creativity and imagination that I see in this congregation. And so we are going to, throughout Lent this year, embark on a communal and progressive art project um, throughout the sanctuary. And we are going to be reflecting on the last days of Jesus' life as we walk through the Lenten season. Um, some traditions do this in a linear way or um, by walking through a particular um, place. Um, and it's often called Stations of the Cross. This is similar, but not quite the same thing. Um, you'll see that these aren't set up in chronological order, but rather um, you'll see that by each um, prayer station, is what we're going to call them, is a map. And this is a map of um, roughly what we think Jerusalem looked like around the time of Jesus. We have a pretty good idea that we're close-ish to that. And so this is sort of set up like a mini-map, not a mini-map, a giant map, of Jerusalem, a mini-Jerusalem. Um, it is not to scale, so if there are any cartographers out there, my apologies. The room is not in the shape of Jerusalem, so I did what I could. And there are certain places where something happened, and there are pews right there. That was sort of not a great place for setting something up. So this is roughly a map-ish of Jerusalem, probably, at the time that Jesus was alive. And we're going to step through each week during our time of witnessing God at work and talk about um, one or two of the things that happened in that last week. In conjunction with this, I'm going to be preaching through the Beatitudes for the next couple of weeks. So as we uh, explore together the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, search through this um, very uh, popular passage of scripture together. We do so reflecting on Jesus' teachings with the knowledge of this building story in the background because all that Jesus did and taught during his lifetime was with the knowledge that all of this was gathering steam and building in the background. And so we will continue to build these, these stations, these prayer stations together throughout Lent and up until Good Friday. Our Good Friday service this year will be here at Emsworth. Last year we had Monday, Thursday here and Good Friday at St. Andrews. We're flip-flopping that this year. And so Good Friday we'll have all of our stations finally set up for prayer. You can come in early before church, stay late after church, and reflect on these. You'll see that they do each have the chronological list of the things that we're reflecting on along with the scripture references that go along with it. So if you're not quite sure where that particular story happens, you can find it in there. And here's where the community participation part comes in. As we go through these, if there is um, one of these pieces of the, the story that you connect with or that you have something that reminds you of, um, maybe a piece of art that you have or maybe created a piece of art, if we have any artists in the, in the sanctuary, I'm looking at you. Um, any poetry, maybe. I'm not sure how we could bring music in, but if you can figure out a way to bring a piece of music or a sound or something in, 
um, a smell, a taste, or whatever it is um, that makes you think about one of these things, you are welcome to bring that in. You're welcome to either share it with the community, why that reminds you of this particular part of the story, or you're welcome to ask me to, to share that you brought that in, or you're welcome to just silently leave it and let it sit there and let people figure it out on their own. That's okay, too. Any of those that you're comfortable with is all right. So this morning, Ashley and I are going to start telling the story. And while we tell the story, we're going to be walking around the sanctuary to the different places where the things are happening. Um, you can, whatever works for you. I'm going to start passing this around. So this is a map of Jerusalem. So if you want to take a look at it while we're doing this, that is a current map of old city Jerusalem. It's changed a little bit since um, these events happened. The first thing we want to talk about, um, well, the first thing we're going to skip is Jesus sending the disciples out to get a donkey. We have a whole Sunday for Jesus sending the disciples out to get a donkey and then riding the donkey into Jerusalem. So we're going to come back to that part of the story in a couple of weeks. But before, between Jesus sending the disciples to get the donkey and uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on said donkey, we have an event where a woman walks into the room and she breaks a bottle of very expensive perfume. We're talking a year's wages or more from a woman who probably didn't have a job. So it would have taken her a very, very, very long time to have saved up all of this money for this perfume. And I'm going to start passing around. I'm going to start over here and then we'll get them back to the back soon. I encourage you not to spray these. They are disgusting. <laughs> Just, you can crack the lid a little and sniff it, but trust me, I made the mistake of spraying one of these. Have you ever sat next to someone like on a plane or a bus or something who had way too much perfume on? Okay, imagine that smell magnified about 47,000 times because this woman took a whole bottle of perfume and smashed it and, and um, anointed Jesus with it, washed his feet with her hair. Um, it's just a very dramatic moment of scripture, but this is sort of a foreshadowing of what is to come. And we're going to talk about the burial spices in a few weeks that would have been used when Jesus was buried. And so this is seen as a bit of a foreshadowing of Jesus' burial. Yeah, if you have allergies, just pass on that. Trust me. And so back here, um, you, I'm going to leave those back here. So if in your prayer and reflection, if smell is the thing that helps remind you, for some people that is a very strong sense. If that is a thing that reminds you of stuff or brings to, what's that? Coconut and vanilla. Okay. <laughs> We're getting mixed bags on the, the perfume here, but, um, this is going to be our um, sensory experience for this prayer station. So as you're back here thinking about um, Jesus being anointed before his death, anointed with this, with this perfume, um, pray about what that is that God is trying to tell you through that particular piece of the narrative. Yeah, don't. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> and so after he's anointed... Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, and we will, we will come back to that. But Ashley, what is it that Jesus finds when he rides into Jerusalem and enters the temple? Father's house. So Jesus, the first thing he does 
good we're human. And our priorities often aren't what they should be, but it's these shiny coins, money. And somehow people have found ways to turn even the worship of God into a way to make money. And as he walks in, there are booths that are selling doves and pigeons and spices and oils and all the things that you would need to make uh, a sacrifice. But instead of selling them at fair prices, people were taking advantage of the fact that if you wouldn't want to travel a long way with these spices or animals or whatever else you need, they were selling them at high prices. And they were taking advantage of those who were poor. And Jesus gets upset because Jesus is a righteous man, the son of God, and he takes the coins and he throws them to the ground. He turns over the tables and goes, this is a house of prayer. And you turned it into a den of so if we reflect over on this side, I'm not sure where this station of the cross is located. Roughly like the fourth okay. pew from the back. <laughs> but it is, but I have it on the wall by the back door. <laughs> but as we're reflecting, as you're back there looking, think about ways in which sometimes maybe we can turn worship um, into, into selfish acts. How do we turn the church into a selfish act? What are we called to do as Christians? Who are we called to love? Who are we called to care for? Who are we called to orient our attention around? We orient around money and possessions and things we want and think we should do. And we have our focus on God and who God is and what God is already up to. Amen. Amen. <laughs>
Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. This passage from Matthew 5 is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which he teaches to a crowd for quite a long while. Three chapters of Matthew, to be exact, are the Sermon on the Mount. And this particular section is often called the Beatitudes. And Beatitude is a very weird word, which we do not use very often. But it really just means blessedness or happiness. It's an old word that came from Latin and got dropped in day-to-day language, but stuck around in church for whatever reason. We see similarly structured passages in the Psalms and in Proverbs. There are more than 20 instances of this particular pattern in the Psalms and seven or eight of them in Proverbs. Jesus frequently quotes or references the Old Testament, so it's not a surprise that here in this sermon where he is teaching to the multitudes, he uses this particular poetic phrasing. For as unusual a term as beatitude is for us, the passage itself is for most of us pretty familiar. In fact, when you get home, I encourage you to do a little research project. Do a Google search for the beatitudes, comma, and insert some sort of home decor or clothing item here. For example, I found at least a dozen throw pillows with the Beatitudes printed or embroidered on them. I didn't even try to count the wall hangings. 
There are about a million pieces of jewelry with the Beatitudes on them. I didn't actually count those, but it did just feel like a round million. You can get tote bags, t-shirts, neckties, key rings, sweatpants. This one strikes me as super weird for some reason, because who says, you know what I need? I need a pair of sweatpants. Sweatpants with the Beatitudes on them. It's just weird. There are scarves, stickers, even a throw blanket. You name it, you can probably find it with the Beatitudes on it. All of this to say, this is definitely one of those passages of scripture that most of us have heard so many times. We glaze over when it's read to us, or we skim over it when we're reading it to ourselves. It's right up there with Psalm 23 and John 3.16, with passages that have been so overused and cut off from the rest of the scripture around them that many people don't actually know what they are there for in the first place. Don't get me wrong, I do, don't think it's entirely a bad thing that there are certain scripture passages out there that people who don't come to church know about, passages that have sort of become part of our cultural fabric. But at best, it can offer a comfort and a small knowledge of God's presence to people who might not be in a place where they are able or willing to come to church. These things can plant a seed. But at its worst... This becomes a situation of a little knowledge becoming a dangerous weapon, peddling Christianity light theology that you tend to see on the book racks at the pharmacy or the grocery store checkout lane. But either way, it's easy for those who read the Bible more regularly to get to those places in Scripture and assume we know it really well already because we have it practically memorized. Or if you have a better memory than me, you might have it actually memorized. And so we move on to the parts that we don't know as well. And some of you probably heard me say a few moments ago that I was going to do a four-part sermon series on the Beatitudes, and you probably wondered how in the world is she going to find four weeks of new stuff to talk about on the Beatitudes. And to be perfectly honest, I've been asking God the same exact question, but I am trusting that when we stop and slowly and carefully reflect on these words for the next few weeks, the Holy Spirit is going to take care of the rest. To get to the meat of this passage, it's important to remember some background information. This comes at a time when flocks of people are following Jesus to hear his teachings and to experience the healing that he is offering Jesus is constantly getting in boats and trying to get away from these people and going up mountains to try to escape them, and they just keep following him. This is after Jesus has gathered the 12 disciples. He probably had some other regular followers that were closer to him than the huge crowds of people as well, ones that weren't included in the 12 disciples, but ones that weren't just part of the masses either. Some historians and biblical scholars suggest that there were some women, maybe Mary and Martha or Mary Magdalene, who were sort of unofficial disciples who were there frequently with him. So just like we have circles of people who are closer to us in our own lives than others, Jesus did as well. Which means that there were two main groups in attendance when Jesus gave this sermon in which we find the Beatitudes or the Blessed Bees. There were the disciples, those who followed him regularly, and there were the crowds. 
And these two groups would have heard what Jesus had to say in different ways. And they would have needed to hear different things from him as well. There are passages of scripture I preach very differently when I'm here with you all, who I know well, whose journey is joined to mine in some way, than I would if I were filling in at a church of people I've never met before, and even more differently than if I were preaching or speaking at a community event or an outreach ministry of some sort. And just as the people there at the time would have understood or interpreted Jesus' words differently from one another, people throughout Christian history have interpreted these words very differently too. There are three traditional interpretations of the Beatitudes. The first is that they are a word of grace. The first few statements of the Beatitudes refer to people who are stuck in particular circumstances. These are people who feel empty or sad or small. And the rest of them refer to people doing God's dirty work, so to speak. And all of these people are granted a consolation of some sort. The second traditional interpretation of this passage is that it is an ethical exhortation. It's telling us what we should be doing. This interpretation says that the Beatitudes lists states of mind or life that we should all strive to in order to experience God's blessing. Be this way and God will bless you in this particular way. Presbyterian theological father John Calvin likes this particular interpretation, and it's one of those places that I respectfully disagree with John Calvin. The third is that this is more of regulations or description for the community. As one of my commentaries puts it, their goal is the life, as you see in Beatitudes 5 through 8, that comes from grace, as you see in 1 through 4. And this third of these interpretations is the one that really seems to make the most sense for all of the Beatitudes, because they aren't all the same. There seems to be a distinct shift of tone partway through. And these have more meaning when we remember they don't all have to serve the exact same purpose just because they have the same structure. Jesus doesn't deliver all of these with the same intent. They all have the same structure, but they all have very different elements within that. These first two interpretations, when you apply them to all of the statements, can ring a bit hollow, especially when we remember that Jesus would have been talking both to people who were well on their way on their journey with him, as well as those who didn't know him well yet. They all needed to hear something from him, but they all didn't need to hear the same thing. Someone would have missed out. The first three statements of the Beatitudes are certainly about grace offered to those in crummy situations. Those who feel beaten down, those who are sad, those who are seen as or feel like less than. But what about those for whom things are okay? How can we make ourselves mourn when we're not sad and why would that be a good thing? Mourning as a virtue doesn't make sense and it doesn't fit with Jesus' theology. And the rest of the Beatitudes aren't ways to earn God's favor, but descriptions of what those who have been filled and changed and moved by the Holy Spirit look like. 
The idea that you can buy or earn God's favor also does not fit with Jesus' theology. What ultimate good is peacemaking when we're doing it for our own sake, rather than because peace is what God loves? But to be a peacemaker, because of how God's grace has changed us and brought us through the times of mourning or meekness or hollowness of spirit, that changes the world. And so the Beatitudes make a perfect Lenten text to dwell in. As we remember the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf by Jesus, we are spurred to actions that make us a blessing to others. In blessing others, we in turn find blessings we could never have imagined. The season is a time for us to remember that when we were poor in spirit, when we felt empty and hollow, God gave us the greatest gift of all, an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. When we mourn, we are given no less than the great comforter to wipe away our tears. When we feel small and insignificant, we are reminded that God made this great earth for us to care for and to enjoy. And in remembering these things, we cannot help but be spurred toward justice, mercy to others, purity of heart, peace and righteousness, even when it is not the popular way of living and being. And so over the next weeks, as we build our visual storytelling of Jesus' last week of life, we will remember that great grace that we are all offered. And as we explore the Beatitudes, we will look at the ways that God is reflected in us when we live into that grace. Amen.